So first, again, I just want to, um, again, express the appreciations for, um, for your sincerity, really. Sincerity of effort. It's a pleasure to talk one-on-one with everyone. There's really a lot of... Um, we'll have a time at the end uh, when we might be able to speak some at the end of the retreat, but uh, you, you don't know what's going on with everyone. And it's actually quite beautiful. And there's a lot of um, sincerity and there are different kinds of learning and breakthroughs and good learning. and So, anyway, it's mostly, but what I'm mostly concerned about is the, uh, the fullness of effort because it really everything else takes care of itself when there's fullness of effort. So, again, I just want to express... Um, Appreciation. So this evening I want to talk on the theme of the spiritual journey. And I want to do that by using one of my favorite poems as a reference point for talking about our practice. And that poem is called The Journey. So my title was not an act of great creativity. Uh, What I'd like to do is to read that poem twice, and then uh, it's a short poem, it's a little longer than a page, and then I'd like to go through the sections of the poem and unpack it in terms of the different meanings that the poem suggests for our practice. And at the end of the evening, I'll give you a copy of the poem. So here's the poem, The Journey, by Mary Oliver. This is Mary Oliver. She lives in, or on, I should say, Cape Cod in Massachusetts. And this book is... uh, New and Selected Poems, and Mary Oliver has won the Pulitzer Prize. She's a great poet. And this is her poem, The Journey. One day, you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. Though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, Mend my life, each voice cried. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough, and a wild night, and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, As you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. The journey. 
One day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds. And there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. Thank you, Mary Oliver. (laughs) So before actually going into the poem, I'd like to talk a little bit about the metaphor of the journey, which is related to the metaphor of us walking a spiritual path. And it's a very um, common metaphor for the spiritual life. Uh, In the time of the Buddha, the Buddha used these metaphors. You may know that the Buddha talked about uh, the Eightfold Path, that we walk a kind of a path. He talked about that we walk the middle way. And these words, path, that are translated as path and way, were the ordinary words that people used in everyday life for going from one place to another. This was the very, there, was no, there were no complicated words, no spiritual vocabulary, and so forth. This is, this is a passage from, on, from the Buddha talking both about the middle way and the eightfold path. This is from the Middle-Length Discourses of the Buddha, which if you want to get a single volume and read through this, it's a wonderful text to do. I once, these are, these are called the Middle-Length Discourses, which means they're, that's how they organize them. They didn't, they organize, one of the ways of organization was according to the length of the talks, and these are all about kind of like 7 to 15 pages long. So one period of my life, I just read one or two a day, for about 100 or 150 straight days. It was delightful. Because they're, they're kind of, I don't know if bite-sized is the term, but they're, they're uh, manageable. You can read just a short amount. So this is from one of the, the texts. There is a middle way, the Buddha said, for the abandoning of greed and hate, giving vision, giving knowledge, which leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nirvana. And what is this middle way? It is just this eightfold path. That is, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. This is the middle way, giving vision, giving giving knowledge, which leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nirvana. And it's interesting to, to um, consider what a path is 
in the very ordinary sense of the term. So what is a path? It's, uh, it's a place where you might say uh, a clearing has been made, where, there's a kind, where, where certain uh, obstacles to walking freely have been cleared away. You know, maybe bushes and brambles and so forth have been cleared away and a path is established. There's some removing of debris and obstacles. And it's interesting that if you think of the, uh, what we do when we work with the difficult energy or the hindrances, you could think of that as the debris on the path. <laughs> you know, there are other ways of thinking about it that I suggested. But in a way, it's hard to walk the path when those energies are present. And part of what we do that accelerates practice is we, we're walking along the path and we're kind of walking and we say, oops, looks like, looks like a hindrance is here. Hmm, looks like more than one hindrance is here. Hmm, looks like what we sometimes call a multiple hindrance attack <laughs> occurring on the path. And, uh, and so what we do is we attend to it and we maybe from what, in one sense of the metaphor, we clear the path. And we can walk more easily when there are not so many hindrances. We can more readily come to insight and knowledge. And I think the, the metaphor of walking, uh, the path, walking on the way, walking the path, being on a journey, it's a really interesting one because it suggests that there's, um, there's a direction. We're going in a certain place. You don't have a path that really uh, doesn't go anywhere. I mean, I think there are sometimes. I remember from my studies in philosophy that the, the philosopher Heidegger once wrote a book which was, it was um, in German, it was called a Holzwege, which translates, I don't know if anyone knows German here, but uh, it translates as paths which lead nowhere. There are these paths in the woods which kind of just They just kind of peter out in some bleak landscape. But most paths actually go somewhere, and we go in a certain direction. But what's interesting about a path or a journey is that we're going in a certain direction, but we don't always know exactly what we're going to find. We we move through different uh, changes of scenery. We, uh, when we go on a journey, we see new landscapes, we have new experiences. In a way, we, on a journey, we get away from our habits, you might say. It's like when we go on a, when, one of the beautiful things about travel, even being on a retreat, is that in some sense we get away from our habits. But of course, a lot of our habits sort of follow us on the path saying, hey, what about me? You forgot me. Come, here I am. Have you noticed? <laughs> It's, and so you can think of a journey as like that. Journeys to other places, to foreign countries, are wonderful because we can get away from our usual way of doing things, but they don't entirely uh, leave us. So there's, um, there's this uh, novel aspect to journeys. There's also a mysterious aspect. We may go into new territory. Some of the territory may be difficult. Some of it may even feel dangerous. We go and we don't know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, we encounter the unknown, we find the unexpected. Uh, We do all these things and eventually we return home. 
And so I think the, the journey is a beautiful uh, metaphor for what we're doing on this retreat. You know, we, we are moving away from the habitual, but we're also finding that the habits are there. We're going into new, we're seeing new vistas. We're going into new experiences. Uh, we have to have that uh, spirit, or we're encouraged to have that spirit of openness, of being open to the mystery, open to, the, to what's new, what's novel. Uh, expectations in meditation are often not very helpful because they, they, they make us think that we know what's going to happen. And there's something very important about our practice of being open to what's new, open to what's fresh. And, and that's an important part of just... And it's not easy. It's just, okay, 45 minutes. Well, I'd really like to happen what happened about two sittings ago. That was cool, right? And... Um, we can try to make that happen, but uh, the, the, the power of this practice comes from being, being open and not trying so much to reproduce what happened, but to just see and trust in the unfolding, you might say, of the journey. So then to the Mary Oliver poem, I want to go through and sort of distill a few um, themes here. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. So what's the bad advice? Um, What's this? She talks about though the whole house began to tremble. You felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried. I would like to see that part as really talking about that which makes it hard for us to change. We could talk about that as our conditioning, our habits. We might say that a large part of meditation is sitting here and listening to bad advice. Again, we don't put that in the brochures. It's probably not great marketing. But in a way, what we watch when we sit here is we watch our conditioning. We watch our habits. We also watch other things that can come freshly and newly. But a significant part of our practice is to listen ad nauseum. (laughs) Ad nauseum to our own bad advice, other people's bad advice, our own internalization of other people's bad advice, and so forth. And we actually become close students of bad advice. We become experts at our own bad advice. If I can push the metaphor <laughs> a little bit further. Um, and we, we hear the, we feel, we hear the, the voices and we hear the sense of, uh, we feel what Mary Oliver calls the old tug at your ankles that is preventing the person in the poem from going forth, from really embarking on the journey. There's not, there are not only voices, but there's a physical way that the, uh, the journey is hard, that the, in some sense the journey hasn't even started 
though the whole house began to tremble. You know, in a way, what that is, is that house is maybe the house of our conditioning. And this is what the person in the poem is working to, to leave. And the poem is this beautiful poem about leaving, you might say, the old house, the house of the, our conditioning. What does the bad advice say? It says, it's really important for you to stay in the old house and not leave. I was, I was um, reflecting on this poem in the light of some really interesting experiences which I had about five or six years ago when uh, at a certain point I had been um, teaching for a number of years and I had been really busy. I used to be co-editor of a journal called Revision. I don't know if anyone knows it. It's a, uh, it's a nice journal. And I was a co-editor for about nine or, nine or ten years. We did a lot of beautiful work, but it was, I, was working, I was kind of working too much. I was recently cleaning out old papers, and I looked at a bunch of old papers from that time, and it said, don't work so hard. And, and uh, I kept on working pretty hard. And... And so at a certain point, I knew that I had to uh, really create some open space. And so I went on leave from my main work at teaching at a a graduate school in San Francisco called Saybrook Graduate School, where I used to to be full-time there. I'm not full-time anymore. And I went on leave for a year. I thought that I was working too hard and something that was deep inside that wanted to come out that had a certain element of passion which was kind of getting covered over for me by too much good work. And I felt like I had to somehow make space for what was wanting to come out. And for me that concretely, I had the opportunity to actually be on leave for my work. I, I I made it work financially and worked out arrangements, and then I thought that I needed to basically drop almost everything I was doing. And I did that. I stopped being co-editor of the journal. And guess what? They told me, because I was the, like, the lead editor, and they told me, without you, the journal will fall apart. Mend my life, each voice cried. <laughs> They told me, I was told that if I went on leave from the school, a lot of bad things would happen because my voice was really important. Mend my life, each voice cried. And that, that I left. I used to be on the board of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. I left that. I really dropped a lot of structure. In fact, a vast amount of structure, which is uh, not so easy, right? There, there, it was uh, sometimes scary. I dropped an immense amount of structure, but I, I trusted that something deeper was going to come out of it. And indeed it did. Uh, but the process was not always easy. The process felt hard sometimes. Sometimes there was fear or anxiety. Living without a lot of structure is hard. I mean, it's hard for a lot of people. Maybe not everyone, but it's hard, it was hard for me. So there were the external voices saying, don't do that, we need you. There were the internal voices saying, oh, that's kind of scary, isn't it? And yet something in me 
knew I had to do that. And I went ahead. I knew that I had to give space for something deeper to come out. Just like we're giving space here at the retreat. We're, in a way, stopping all of the activity. And I think that really has to happen like that for something deeper to come up. It's very hard for something deeper to come, at least initially, when we're too busy. You know, and that was my insight at that time, that I needed to really drop a lot of structure and activity, even if it was hard sometimes, trusting that something, would, that, uh, something deeper would manifest in, in the process. And I also did, during that time, I had about a year, actually about 13 months, and I did a lot of retreats. I did the two-month retreat here. I did some traveling. I did, I did a little bit of teaching, not, not very much. So the, the bad advice which tells us to stay in the house is an interesting voice because one of the things, it, it, it comes sometimes out of fear and it tells us basically the familiar is safe. The journey is dangerous and scary. Stay with the familiar. Stay in the house. And there's something in us which uh, likes that in a way. You know, I've, sometimes I've phrased this like, we prefer the known suffering over the unknown. Because we, we, and it's like, it's, it's, uh, we each have to look at that. We prefer the known suffering over the unknown. There's a powerful story in the teachings of the Buddha where he talks about, uh, he also uses the image of being in a house as um, the house of our conditioning. And he says, in a way, we're like children who are living in a burning house, not knowing that it's burning. It's a pretty stark image, right? That we're living, we're not really aware of quite the level of suffering that we have. Sometimes we can touch it, but we're as, we're as if we're living in a burning house. And what we need to do is to find ways to leave that burning house to come to greater freedom. So Mary Oliver goes on to say, You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations though their melancholy was terrible. That's the melancholy of those who were saying, mend my life. You knew what you had to do. And to me, this suggests that there's a part of ourselves which knows that we have to leave that burning house, that knows that we have to move away from the bad advice and the tug at our ankles. You can talk, we can talk about it in different ways, that there's some kind of intention for freedom, some kind of intention to live our life as fully as possible, which, become, which begins to form. You know, and for, it can form at different ages. Maybe some of us have perhaps had remembrances of t- intentions from earlier parts in our life. So maybe some of us have had something, some new intentions come to the surface. But this sense of you knew what you had to do at a certain point we know I cannot listen to that bad advice. I have to move out and follow something, some deeper vision, we might say, some deeper intention. 
we need to have a certain clarity of intention. And here it's important to, to uh, point out that intention is incredibly important in this practice. Sometimes I like to think about uh, our life, according to this practice, as being, in a way, very, very simple. It's like we're, we're mindful. We, know, we try to be aware of what's happening. On the basis of that mindfulness, we bring our best wisdom and our best compassion to form an intention about what to do, and then we act. And that's all we do moment after moment. There's mindfulness. There's the, on the basis of the mindfulness, wisdom and compassion forms an intention. And then we act, hopefully. Sometimes intentions don't get to actions, but, but that would be a full cycle. You know, so that's the case even when we're sitting here on retreat. It's like, okay, what's happening right now? I'm feeling a little bit antsy. Mindfulness. What should I do? Okay, I'll... um, um, In the next sitting, or in the next walking, I'll walk a little more uh, briskly. I'll try to... um, ground the energy. You might say something like that. That's the cycle. That's, that's you know, just that simple moment of being mindful, then asking what's wise to do, what's compassionate to do in the moment, forming an intention, and then carrying it out. That's, I think we do some version of that moment by moment by moment by moment. It's useful to point out those parts of the cycle because each of them is really important. And the intention aspect is taken to be actually crucial in Buddhist practice. It's the intention which we follow in metta practice. It's the intention which can um, can move us in the direction we want to go. In Buddhist practice, it's especially important, and I think in any spiritual practice, to somehow touch the intention to be freer. And indeed, to bring that, that um, intention of freedom more to the center of our consciousness. That we can feel the different aspirations in our life. And we can be inspired by the idea of transforming suffering. And when that intention starts to be stronger, in Mahayana tradition, it's called bodhicitta sometimes translated as the mind of awakening. And that's something that we cultivate here and that it can get stronger. I think each of us, I know, have been touched by, we may express it in different ways. We may or may not use words like awakening. But we may use it in terms of, I really want to transform my suffering. I really see that that's what my life is about, in large part, a significant part of my life. And this for me is that moment in the poem where she says, you knew what you had to do. <laughs> you get a sense, okay, I have more clarity about what's important for me in my journey. And I can try to bring that intention more into my moment-to-moment practice here and more into my moment-to-moment life. In some sense, this is a way that the journey begins. In the poem, this is how the journey begins. You knew what you had to do. You move out of the old house. You have a different intention. We have a different intention. And then she says, 
It was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. So I liked that phrase, it was already late enough. And for me, it made me reflect on the sense that um, we start our learning process, or this awakening process in a way, especially in terms of coming to this practice. We start it kind of uh, in the middle of our lives. There's already, as it were, a lot of water under the bridge. You know, maybe someone like the Dalai Lama gets meditation instructions at age three, and, you know, he's from cradle to grave, he's totally in a spiritual framework with the best teachers. And even the Dalai Lama says, you know, you know, all that spiritual training, and I still came from a part of Tibet where people were extremely irritable. (laughs) And he said, I was really kind of irritable and angry until I was about 20, and then it kind of evened out a little bit. But that's what he, and with all the spiritual training, he was, you know, he had, he had, he was, said he was irritable. And he said he still gets angry. It just doesn't last as long as it used to when he was 17. You, know, you can think of the Dalai Lama as this angry teenager. <laughs> um, so it was already late enough. And I thought of, I don't know if anyone has read uh, Dante, which I read as a, first year in college, and I remembered it because it's a beautiful book. Uh, you know, the Dante, Dante also talks about this journey and this path. And it's really interesting that Dante, the journey for Dante begins in the middle of life. Doesn't, the spiritual journey doesn't begin when you're really young. For a lot of people it begins, and for many of us, especially um, maybe coming to this practice in the middle of our lives, early middle, middle middle, late middle, whatever. Um, we come to it and we start waking up with a lot of stuff's already happened. This is what Dante said. Uh, this is like what from the 13th century or something like that. In the middle of the journey of our, in the middle of the journey of our life, I came to myself within a dark wood where the straight way was lost. So he's basically saying he's discovered this sense of spiritual journey in the middle of his life, and it came in with a certain degree of confusion, a certain degree of darkness. You know, it's not all, oh, I discovered the spiritual journey, and it's all hunky-dory after that, right? I don't know what the word hunky-dory means, but it means something like wonderful. (laughs) Okay. The straight way was lost, Oh, how hard a thing it is to tell of that wood, savage and harsh and dense, the thought of which renews my fear. So he's basically talking about this period when he started awakening, and it was a hard time. So bitter is it that death is hardly more. I cannot rightly tell how I entered there. I was so full of sleep at the moment when I left the true way. But when I had reached the foot of a hill at the end of that valley, which had pierced my heart with fear, I looked up and saw its shoulders already closed with the beams of the planet, that leads us straight on every road. The time was the beginning of the morning. So we wake up. We start waking up and things have happened. And what that means in terms of our practice is that we wake up and we sometimes can feel some um, sadness or grief 
or pain of different kinds for what's happened in our life. But that's part of the process that Dante is describing, that I think Mary Oliver is describing. It was late enough in a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. It's like our lives are full of debris. We don't have these perfect lives where there's no debris. We wake up and we've done things that we don't feel good about. We've had close relationships in which there's been pain. You know, we've had things happen among those close to us that we don't feel great about. And the awakening process happens right in the midst of that. And we have to come to grips with that. And there can be sometimes uh, sadness, sometimes grief. Sometimes when we start to wake up, and this is important, we can actually find ourselves being quite judgmental of how we were in the past. Which is ironic because we start to judge ourselves harshly at the very moment that we're waking up. But it's, I've experienced that certainly a lot. You know, On this retreat that I did in the period of that time, I found myself extremely judgmental at times of how I had lived my life. You know, I'd been so busy, there was a lot of stuff which just had accumulated. And I felt, oh, I should have done this, I should have done that. And that's to be expected, that there can be certain kinds of, again, we'll experience it differently. Some will experience grief, some will experience sadness, some will maybe have a certain amount of peace, some will experience self-judgment about ourselves. And it's, uh, it's really part of what we... Part of what we may experience. In Zen, there's this phrase which has always struck me that they uh, say in some of their chants, they talk about everyone having twisted karma. And I kind of like that. I think, I think each of us is, you know, we're not these straight perfectionist, you know, straight ramrod rod, straight beings that have, you know, no imperfections. You know, the, the debris in the road I think of that we're all these beautiful twisted trees that have blown in the wind quite a lot, you know, that have been buffeted some. And there's something precious. I love that sense of twisted karma because there's something to me, when I hear that phrase, it's not twisted in the sense of simply bad or uh, what, um, uh, degenerate or something. But it's more twisted. In, there's a, for me, there's an endearing quality to the twisted. You know, the way we say to our friends, you're weird. Or to say to ourselves, maybe, you're weird. You know, I have a friend who, when I do something that she really loves, she says, you're nuts. <laughs> and I know, you know, from other people, that might not be so positive. But from her, it, be, it means, oh, you've touched my heart. You're nuts. <laughs> and um, I like that. Little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the streets of clouds, and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own. And what I uh, am moved by in this passage is this sense that uh, as we walk the spiritual journey, as we walk this path, as we do this practice as we leave the house of conditioning. As we look at our lives honestly, 
we really become ourselves more fully. We find our own voice. And I love that in the poem, the sense of finding our own voice. Sometimes we think, and you know, if you hear the Buddhist rhetoric, you'll think that, you know, oh, it's all, you know, some of you have read Buddhist uh, psychology or philosophy, and it's, it's all about becoming no one, there's no self, and so forth. But I think that um, can be confusing. And um, I think what everyone I know, they become original people. They become them, their own selves. They find their own voices. Because what is our own voice but the ability to speak free from that conditioning? Just to be fresh, to be fresh with our experience and to start to tap into our own gifts, to let our gifts blossom in the world. That's a big project, right? That's, I think, what we all most fully are called to do, to let our own personal gifts and to let the gifts of, the, of human potential manifest in the world. And find, find those voices. There's a beautiful poem, or it's actually a passage in a poem from the Vietnamese teacher, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, that some of you know. And in that poem, there are these lines, which I think are about becoming oneself, finding one's own voice. Why speak of the need to love one another? Just be yourself. You don't have to become anything else. So he's saying even to talk about love can be highfalutin, right? Can be extra. Just be yourself in a full way and everything follows from that. And I love that. I know I love that I love that we're really encouraged in this practice just to be radically ourselves. You know, like we were saying the other day, there's no one who's ever been like us and no one will ever be like us again. We're these unique plants, you know, that's um, growing and coming into its own nature. And I think that the spirit of this journey, the spirit of this practice really encourages that. And it's hard to do. It's hard to find our voice. Um, sometimes it takes difficult moments to find our voice. Sometimes we have to go through certain um, travails or difficulties. Um, I remember in the beginning of my own practice when I was doing retreats, uh, I remember really distinctly a moment when some part of my voice came into being and it was totally unexpected. I was doing walking meditation. This was a large retreat, maybe with 100 people. It was in Massachusetts at the uh, Insight Meditation Society. And I was uh, doing walking meditation, and I remember that I was near these people, and for whatever reason, I felt myself feeling really afraid of them. Here's everyone's in silence, and these people are walking near me, and I felt this fear. And it was confusing. Why am I afraid? And I felt this fear, and the mindfulness told me, you're afraid, which was great, because otherwise, what would I have done if I was afraid? I would have you know, just left or something or gone somewhere else. But there was enough mindfulness for me to actually know I was afraid, and I, then I started to really um, want to know what it was about. And so I found myself asking myself, why am I afraid? Why am I afraid of these people? And I just asked that question. I didn't, you know, I didn't know what I would find out. 
and something started speaking from within that told me why I was afraid. It was only for myself. It was a very honest voice. It was what I came to call my no-bullshit voice. And I hadn't really known it before that time. And there was something that got awakened that I then started to find accessible in other situations, you know, that it would be something similar, that I'd be having a difficult experience. I'd say, what's this about? You know, where I was at a, be at a meeting and it would feel, something would feel uncomfortable. I would say, what's that? And I would have this voice be able to tell me what was going on in myself. It wasn't accessible before that. And it just came very naturally out of a difficult situation. I think it's similar to what the Quakers called the still, was it the still, still quiet voice? Is that it? The still small voice, right. Thank you, thank you, Charlotte. And it's something that uh, we, we probably know it in different ways, but there's, within each of us, there's a voice that just, that doesn't bargain, that doesn't uh, play games with us, that just gives us the straight communication. And it's very precious to be in contact with that. And I think part of what we, part of, part of what this poem is saying, that as we go deeper into our practice, we touch that voice. That voice becomes more and more there. We find, we find our own voice. Little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own. And it goes on to say, that voice kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world. It's interesting. You, you might not expect those lines right in the poem. You might expect the person on this journey just to kind of walk in solitary further on this journey into the night, right? But there's something that's, I think, very important here, which is that this whole journey is not just a solitary journey, but it's a journey of finding oneself, finding one's own voice, and then connecting with the world. Finding out how, better, let's say, how one's own gifts, how one's own voice manifests in the world. For me, one of the images which comes to mind is the image of the bodhisattva in Buddhism. Bodhi means awakening, sattva means being. Some of you know the bodhisattva. This is a bodhisattva that I... I like to bow to. This is the Bodhisattva Manjushri with the sword that cuts through delusion. If you want to bow to Manjushri, Manjushri will be happy and may bestow gifts on you. We'll see. Uh, but Manjushri is a Bodhisattva, but we could also say that uh, there, so there are these almost like archetypal Bodhisattvas like uh, Sita was talking about last night, uh, Chen Rezi or Avalokiteshvara, the bodhisattva of compassion. There are these archetypal beings. But we also think that real human beings are bodhisattvas and there are beings who are dedicated both to awakening themselves and to serving others and particularly helping to bring them to awakening. And that's an image uh, and a kind of like an uh, ideal which to me is, um, is very, very powerful. And it's really... I think it's probably the ideal or the archetype which most, which I most want to manifest. And it's, it's this blend of individual awakening and working with others 
in the areas where we have our own gifts, where we have our own vocation, our own calling. And so what having our own voice does is it lets us actually be able to be in the world and stand our ground, to know who we are, to be able to not be knocked around by the world so much because I have my own voice. I know who I am. I know that in terms of my voice, in terms of my body, my presence. This is another way to think about what we, what we do in our practice that's more pointing to daily life practice. That we go into our own voices, we can hold our own ground. We are um, both our own individual and we're connected with others. When we know our own voice, we can be more honest and direct with others. We can have, I think, deeper relationships. If we don't know our own voice, if we're back in the house, it's actually harder to be with others because in some ways we're still plying the bad advice. The Zen teacher Dogen said it like this. He said, he talked about this way that, we, that, we, that the connection of knowing ourselves is connected with being with others. And he said it in a typically paradoxical Zen way, so, which I like. To do practice is to study ourselves. To study ourselves is to forget ourselves. To forget ourselves is to be enlightened by the 10,000 things. I'll read that again. <laughs> to do practice is to study ourselves. To study ourselves is to forget ourselves. To forget ourselves is to be enlightened by the 10,000 things. So you get the, the stages there. To know ourselves deeply, in a way, you might say, is to forget our more superficial aspects of ourselves and become ourselves so fully that we're not self-conscious, we're not carrying around self-images, we're just ourselves, just like a tree is a tree. Do you think trees have self-images? It's hard to know, but I doubt it. <laughs> uh, and I think that's, that's the direction. So I think you, you get the logic of the, the Zen teaching, that in a sense we lose the self-consciousness, the self-image, the self-judgment to become so fully ourselves. You know, A lot of people, as they get older, they say, not everyone, but a lot of people say, at a, at a certain age, they just do not bother with other people's opinions about them, right? And it's, I think that is maturity. It can be just being, what, um, persnickety or something. <laughs> but I think there's something mature in that. So here's the last part of the poem. As you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. I think this is another way of talking about this balance between finding our own voice and then being of use to others. Determined to do the only thing you could do. The only thing you could do in that sense is to be yourself to embody your true vocation, our true vocation, which has both a a personal aspect and a universal aspect. The personal aspect is following our own gifts, whatever they are. 
you know, all the different vocations. And the universal aspect is grounding the personal gifts in a deep, deep understanding of human potential and what it means to be human, moving towards that awakening. So both are crucial. Leave one out and it's, it's um, not, not very full. I think there's a, a deep place for knowing what our own gifts are and honoring them, not trying to be someone else, not even trying to be some spiritual ideal at the cost of our own selves. I don't think that works. But we have to radically be ourselves. And then as we do that, as we save the only life we can save, which in a way is our own, we actually then are more and more able to be of use to others. In a way, we're able to um, connect with others, be with others, because we are ourselves. Again, I I think it's paradoxical, but it's very, to me, it's very beautiful, and it's part of this uh, part of this process. So let me finish just by reading the poem one more time in its fullness, and then we can have some uh, discussion. The Journey by Mary Oliver. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds. And there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. Thank you very much. Let's just sit quietly for, for a moment.